Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly conversation around themes in the worlds of business finance and economics. I'm Stan Peñal, the banking editor. And this week, of course, we're looking at the one thing the world is worried about, which is the Chinese stock market route, which has been exported to the rest of the world. Joining me to try and make sense of it are the Asia editor, Dom Ziegler, and our finance editor, Ed McBride. To put it in some sort of context, the Shanghai Stock Exchange continued its hasty descent on Tuesday, but unlike Monday, it wasn't followed by markets tumbling in Europe or America. So after a bit of a panic at the start of the week, things feel, well, a little less panicky. Still, questions have been raised about the health of the Chinese economy, and doubts over its strength have had an impact on everything from oil prices to when the Fed will raise interest rates, or indeed, whether this is the start of a full-blown financial crisis. Ed, let's start with you. Are people making too much of this? China, after all, remains a communist economy. The Shanghai Composite, as an indicator, is hardly the equivalent of the S&P in America or the DAX in Germany. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, there are a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that Chinese stocks are still the world's best performing over the past 12 months, right? And the run-up was so extreme and so steep uh, that even though the gains from the calendar year uh, 2015 have been wiped out, it was still climbing uh, in the late part of 2014, and and it's still above the levels it, it was then. So, you know, we've really just, we've wiped out eight months' gains. It's not a huge turnaround. The other thing to bear in mind, as you say, is that the Chinese economy doesn't live and die by the stock market. Um, That's not the way companies fund themselves for the most part. They fund themselves through bank loans. A far more integrated market within the Chinese economy is the property market. There were fears about the property market, uh, have been fears for a couple of years now, but it appears to have stabilized in recent months. Prices aren't falling anymore. Arguably, this is a, a storm in a teacup. There are some concerns that the Chinese economy is slowing and that will have an impact on the world economy, but you can't really measure the scale of the problem by looking at the declines in the Shanghai stock market. And yet... The China's communist leaders are one group of people who set huge store in what the stock market does. In so many ways, this makes no sense at all if you think that the stock market doesn't really have any bearing on the real economy. And if you think that, you know, as we've known for years, it's a complete casino. And if you think that the things that President Xi Jinping and, and others have done in terms of forbidding short selling, urging brokerages to spend billions propping up the market, recently they just cut interest rates again. You wonder why why on earth they care so much, why they're in effect kind of uh, you know propping up the private punter at the expense of all the big state enterprises and so forth, all the big boys. And it must be because the government's credibility, President Xi Jinping's credibility is on the line here in terms of economic competence. And I think that tells you a lot. And the fact that they're failing to stop these stock market falls signals that uh, they themselves have worries about how their competence is perceived. I agree. It doesn't make them look very good, Don. But I mean, surely isn't this always the puzzle with uh, Chinese economic reforms that 
things that seem only very minor setbacks, as things that you, you'd have thought could be endured, things indeed that you might think desirable in the sense that they indicate that market forces uh, are uh, leading the way and, and not all prices and markets are controlled by the government. The government still seems very reluctant to tolerate those. So, I mean, there's been this long debate about will, will a Chinese bond ever default, you know, and um, will a financial product uh, ever be allowed to fail? And uh, the government always seems, you know, almost willing to let it happen. And then it wades in at the last minute. You know, their credibility always seems to be on the line, even yeah. in, in things that from the outside look rather uh, minor. It's the exquisite dilemma for sort of autocratic reformers, isn't it? It's sort of how far you let market forces go. And this is surely a real test now of um, this government under Xi Jinping, because, you know, he's been very clear in signaling that this is going to be a reformist outfit. But just recently, there have been op-eds in the official state mouthpiece press saying that, you know, the reforms are meeting stiff, stiff resistance. There are suggestions that uh, some of uh, China's former leaders, notably Jiang Zemin, are kind of somehow sort of meddling and objecting to what Xi Jinping is pushing for. So he's still trying to kind of get out the idea that he's absolutely the vanguard, at the vanguard of reform. But, I mean, do we believe him and do we kind of really believe that, you know, he's the sort of market-driven reformist? I, I'm not so sure. I mean... After all, what drives him is a sense of nationalism and economic strength. And these are Communist Party members, after all. They're, 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 they're not free marketeers. Dom, on this question of economic strength, clearly questions have been raised over how fast the Chinese economy is actually growing. Is it the 7 or so percent that the government claims? Is it more 3 or 4 percent that, that some people are talking about? I mean, what's your sense? There's always been intense debates about the GDP figures and other measures of growth. But I mean, what is clear is that on the one hand, there's incredible excess capacity in the economy. And this is why I think, you know, cutting interest rates, again, easing reserve requirements for banks is directed, you know, wholly at the stock market, because uh, to sort of think of it as an economic policy measure, you know, you'd have to weigh against that, this excess capacity in that sense of sort of pushing on a string. But on the other hand, I think that nothing that we've seen so far suggests that this shift that the government is very keen to see towards a more consumption-driven economy isn't uh, still carrying on. I think it is. I think that we need to see much more evidence to argue that uh, this shift from investment-driven growth to consumption-driven growth has gone off course. These jitters about China, they seem to be worse outside China than within it. I mean, as you say, the regime is very nervous, doesn't want to end up with egg on its face. But there seems to be a sense that the transition you spoke about, the transition to a more consumption-driven economy is going ahead, that consumption is holding up, that the housing market has, has stemmed its decline, that the area that's really hard hit is industrial production, the, the big steel factories and the coal-burning power plants and so on that were being whacked up uh, hundreds every year. And now suddenly that development has gone into reverse. That is what the government intended, right? It may be happening at a speed faster than makes people comfortable, but that's what they wanted. It is. And there had been promises of uh, a new raft of state-owned enterprise reform to sort of hurry up this uh, process. But there are now suggestions that those announcements of reforms might be delayed or that the reforms themselves might be watered down. It's very hard to know, however. 
Edward, you seem to be quite dismissive of the jitters, as you call them, outside China. I mean, it's worth remembering that over $5 trillion has been wiped off shares uh, globally since August 11th, which is when uh, China announced it was revaluing the UN. Uh, Commodities have tumbled everything from oil to metals to food. I mean, this is having a a real impact. Uh, I don't mean to sound dismissive. What I meant was that the impact is on a particular part of the Chinese economy, or the most severe impact. As Dom said, it's very hard to know exactly how accurate the growth figures are. Are we talking 3% or are we talking 6%? You know, who knows? What is clear is that the area where the slowdown is the most severe is in these investment-led, very resource-intensive industries like steel mills and so on. And that has very severe ramifications for the countries that cater to those industries. So if you are Australian iron ore miner, if you are extracting oil somewhere around the world, you know, your projections of how much of that stuff is going to be sucked up by China have suddenly changed dramatically. And that is obviously very, very bad news for those companies, those countries, those economies. So I, I don't mean to downplay the impact. It's just whether or not this is a more widespread phenomenon or a reflection of the transition that the Chinese authorities were hoping to achieve, that's still not clear to me. I think that's absolutely right. And for all that the future of you know China's economic development really has to do with developing what is in essence a continental-sized economy, China's impacts on in particular the region, you mentioned Australia, Ed, but I mean in Southeast Asia, these countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand have all being supposed to be moving towards a more manufacturing services driven set of economies. But in practice, the kind of China boom probably made policymakers rather complacent and uh, that kind of transition that they needed to make towards a more modern economy didn't happen at the pace that it should have done. The reliance on commodities has been much greater than it should have been. So Indonesia, for instance, relying on exports of coal to China, Malaysia on exports of energy, palm oil, and so forth. This is why the Southeast Asian economies are so are so worried now, because it's kind of laid bare the lack of reform that should have taken place over the last decade or 15 years. Yeah, China has really carried the global economy in really kind of the past couple of decades. It's 15% of the global economy. It's something like 30%, 40% of global growth. I mean, what, what happens to the global economy if that engine sputters? Well, so we come back to a sort of another eternal debate about China, which is hard landing, soft landing, right? Uh, there's no question that the Chinese economy is slowing. Growth over the last two years, 7% is more or less the slowest it's been for decades. That's okay as long as it remains somewhere near that level, not dramatically below it. That will be enough to keep global demand growing, to keep other economies in Asia on a growth path. If we're down to the pessimistic end of the projections of how the Chinese economy is doing, stock market, you know, 3 or 4%, then that is a big deal. The stock markets around the world are right to adjust in the sense that that speaks to a world of much lower growth. But again, I just, it's not clear w- which one of those paths we're on. And I think there there is a bit of a sense of panic, a bit of a sense of overreaction. Everyone's now assuming we're on that 3% path. And I just don't think we have the data to support that yet. And worth noting in passing that Tuesday evening, Beijing time, uh, the interest rates in China were cut for the fifth time since November 
And the reserve ratios on, on banks were lowered, which should inject some money into the stock market. Edward, one big impact seemingly is on the U.S. monetary policy. The Fed had been expected by markets to raise interest rates as early as September. That seems to have been pushed out. Well, absolutely. Uh, it's hard to imagine the Fed won't look at the fact that the Dow dropped at one stage by over a thousand points on Monday and think, gosh, you know, maybe the economy is not quite as strong as we'd thought. And the other thing we have to bear in mind is that every time we think the Fed is about to raise rates, there's a, there's a reason why it puts it off, right? It, the decision has been delayed and delayed and delayed. So you, you'd have to assume the kind of volatility, the kind of market upheaval we've seen over the last couple of days would give the Open Market Committee pause in is likely to see the rate rise pushed back to December, I would guess, is the likeliest time now. On the other hand, you do also have to remember that the Fed is is very clear that it sets interest rates for the US, not for the world, that it's for the rest of the world to look out for the Fed rather than for the Fed to look out for the rest of the world. And so it will be looking at uh, labor market stats, not just unemployment, which is which is already quite low in the States, but whether or not wages are increasing. That's the kind of thing that it's been most attentive to up until now. And I assume it will continue to be. I was just wondering whether the sort of next phase or a next phase of market turmoil would be to shift away from China and stop blaming it on China, but kind of focusing more on a slowdown elsewhere. And I mean, I think that's where commodities and commodity prices, and particularly oil, will be crucially important, uh, watching whether there'll be further falls in, uh, in commodity prices. Yeah, and, and we have a comprehensive look at the world of commodities in the current issue of The Economist. Uh, Don Ziegler, Ed McBride, thanks both very much. That's all we have time for this week. For more of our coverage of business, finance and economics, you can visit our website at economist.com. From London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 